What a glorious day it's going to be, right? Man, what a glorious day. I think sometimes we think about that day and we're anxious and we're afraid. But God says that's a glorious day for his people. We get to be with Jesus. We get to experience the fullness of all that God has desired for his creation from the very beginning. And it's going to be glorious. The thing about that day, though, is that God's desire is that everybody on earth would experience that. His desire is that, that all, the, all the people of the world would know the joy of that day. And God has decided in his infinite wisdom that the way people are going to know about that day and his desires for his created beings is through the people who already know about that day. And that's us. And as I've pondered the the prophecy of Zechariah, it's a long prophecy, 14 chapters. I thought about reading the whole thing, but I figured we'd have to tag team it because Jamie's voice would probably wear out by the time we got to the end of it. And it would take, that'd be all we do today, right? I mean, just read that 14 chapters. But you ought to read it if you haven't, because it's powerful. Lots of visions, lots of imagery, lots of things that God talks about. We're just barely going to scratch a little bit of the surface today. And we're going to ignore a whole lot of things that are there and just talk about a few things. But Zechariah and Haggai, who we talked about last week, are contemporaries. They both come back to Jerusalem with the exiles after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And they come back, and Haggai's message, as we saw last week, is rebuild the temple. They came back at first. They started rebuilding the city. They put the foundation of the temple in place, and they left it there. For 15 years, it's just sat there. And Haggai comes along and says, look, y'all, you got to rebuild the temple. Because this is the visible sign of God's presence with you. And this is the place where you come to worship him and experience him. And the temple is vital. And so they start working on it. And Zechariah mentions the temple a few times. But he has a little different turn on things that he wants to say to the people. What he's saying to them, he's echoing what we see through all of the prophets. I'm convinced that the minor prophets are not 12 separate prophecies that have no connection to each other. I think they build on each other. And you start with Hosea talking about the love of God for his people and the lengths he's willing to go. And it just keeps building and building. And one of the messages that we see throughout this prophecy, the prophecies is that God is concerned about the whole world. And God calls his people to be agents of hope and grace in this world. And when God says through the prophet Zechariah and the other prophets, I want you to be my people, it is for the ultimate purpose of being his agents of grace and hope in a world of brokenness and pain and sin and struggle. And what was a message to Israel that really started with Abraham when he said, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And he says to Israel, I'm calling you out to be my special people so that you can be my witnesses. Jesus says the same thing to the church. And the thing about being witnesses for God is that we have a tendency to think that that, that our being God's people 
is more about escape than it is about engagement. And there is a place for, for coming away and, and hearing God and, and learning of God. But the purpose of that is to go and to be engaged. And we have a tendency to miss our calling because we're trying to escape instead of engage. And the temple that they are rebuilding is not a place where the Israelites can escape. It's a place where, where people are drawn to its light. And it's a place from which the light of God goes forth into the nations so they will know who he is like Israel does. But I'm convinced that in order for us to be the kind of agents that God wants us to be, the kind of people in this world, the kind of people that lead others to the light of God in the midst of all of the darkness and pain and brokenness, we need to hear the call to be holy people. Now, I know we talk about holy people, about holiness. That sort of, that probably might ring negatively to you. Because you have all these images of holiness as strictness and narrowness and rules and regulations and, quite frankly, sometimes crazy things that people say about what it means to be holy. We think that to be holy is to separate ourselves. And there is certainly that element of it. But the real definition of holiness, God tells Israel in Exodus, Jesus tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Our calling is to be holy as God is holy. Our calling to be holy is to look like God. To be like him. And you and I can't make ourselves holy. What he's asking of us is that we desire to be holy. That we want to be the kind of people that look like God. The kind of people that think like God and speak like God and feel like God and and see like God. This is what God wants for his people. This is his calling on us. When you look at Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about the fact that that if you return to me, I will return to you. And that, that doesn't mean that God is standing back saying, look, you guys make the first move and then I'll do something. What he's really saying is, I've taken a hundred steps. I'm looking for you to take one and then see everything I have in store for you. But that's not the end of it. You move on to chapter 3 and you find that Joshua who is the high priest, is dressed in filthy, filthy rags in one of the visions. And, and God comes to Zechariah and says, we got to clean this guy up. And they put on new clothes, clean, pure clothes. And it's a symbol of what God is going to do for his people. In chapter 8, it talks about God's holy mountain and how it will be the place where God's people come and they will experience his holiness there, his purity And then you get to the very last two verses of this whole prophecy. And he talks about how the bells on the horse's reins will be inscribed, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots, when they they build the the temple, they they bring pots and bowls and forks and, and basins and all the things that they're going to need to do the sacrifices. And they're just common things until they go into the temple and they're consecrated and now they're holy things. And you don't treat them the same way that you treat the the things in your cupboard at home. 
But God says in that day, every bowl in every home will be just as holy as those in the temple. And I think he is sending a message about God's desire for his people that all of his people would be holy like him. What I've discovered is that when we start thinking about holiness, our mind starts going to these rules and these regulations and we start thinking about checklists and we start thinking about all these things. But it seems to me that to seek holiness is to seek humility. To seek holiness is to seek humility. In John 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples in the upper room. This is the night he's arrested. And and he says to them, look, you're going to be arrested and you're even going to be killed by people who think they are doing a holy service for God. When I read that, a few weeks ago, it struck me that I've always thought of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of first century Palestine as basically evil people. But when I read that, it struck me that Jesus seems to describe them as arrogant people. As people who say, I'm right, and nothing you say is ever going to change my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts or truth. This is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to do. And you contrast that with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed are those who are meek or humble. You contrast that picture of arrogance in John 16 with how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians 2. And he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what does that mind look like? Humility. God can do anything with a humble person. Anything. Because humble people are teachable. Humble people listen to others. Humble people are thinking more about what others need than what I want. Humble people believe things that are right and it doesn't change the fact that they are right, but they have an openness to other people who may disagree to listen, to discern, to think. And I think God is calling, I think to be holy as God desires is to have that spirit of humility in us that says, I haven't figured out all the truth yet. I don't understand everything there is to understand. I can learn because God wants to teach me through anybody. It doesn't mean that the truth isn't the truth. It doesn't mean that we all stand for the truth. But we do it in a way that's humble rather than arrogant. And you want to be a witness for God in this world. Humility goes a long ways, much farther than arrogance does. You think of the history of the church. What have we often tried to do? We've tried to force people to follow Jesus as if that's even possible. But what I've discovered too is that in order for us to be this kind of witness, a humble witness, humble, holy people, people that look like God, That happens in relationship. 
Holiness is proven. Holiness is, 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 is built in us. Holiness is, is worked out in us by our relationships. John Wesley said, there is no holiness but social holiness. It's, it's not, we tend to think holiness is just something inside of me. And it, certainly that's important. But holiness is always about relationships. It's always about how we treat other people, how we see other people, what we think about other people. And so when you get to chapter 7 of this prophecy, he says to them, look, here's what I want from you. I'm going to bless you, but here's what I want from you. You need to think about how you're treating people, the poor Orphan, widows, stop lying to each other and saying that that's truth. And he he talks about the same thing in chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. He says, look, you need to treat each other right because that's what my people do. It's about relationships. I'd like to think that being holy, you can be holy, just as holy by disengaging from people. You know, I get away from people because people, people make it hard to be holy. I think that's the point. Right? I think that's the point. And when you have a holy heart, when you have a humble kind of heart, you care about people. We can love people, sort of, if we aren't humble. But if you're humble... You'll really love people. We can can love and care about people in a condescending way. Or we can love and care about people in a humble way. That looks like Jesus. Our church, the Wesleyan Church, is rooted in the 19th century holiness movement. Started in 1843. And, And the issue was multifaceted, but it was really about holiness. That, that the people who, Orange Scott and Luther Lee, among others, said that the, the church they were a part of was, was really not following holiness anymore. They weren't teaching it. They weren't, they, weren't, uh, they weren't admonishing people about it. They didn't care about it. And so they said, we care about holiness. But here's the interesting thing. How did they, how did they view that holiness? What did that holy living look like? It was related to two central issues. Abolition and the suffragette movement. And these people who said, look, if, if we're really holy, we care about ending slavery and we're going to do everything in our power to, to end it. And if we are really holy, we care about the rights of women, that, that all people should be treated with respect and have the same rights. And why did they believe those things about other people? Because of holiness. Unfortunately, in the next hundred years... We lost some of that fervor. And by the time you get to the 1960s, our mindset was pretty much holiness is rules and regulations and it's just me and Jesus. And so when you read about the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and you read it particularly about the march and Selma, you will find people from most every denomination and religion marching. But you wouldn't find many Wesleyans. We lost it. We missed it. 
I think we've begun to see that over the last 30 or 40 years. I think we've begun to realize that we have, we've missed it and we're, we need to come back to that. And I'm so grateful for that. We're beginning to understand that holiness is always about people. It's always about relationships. And if you're going to live humbly in this kind of holy life, the only way we're going to do that is if we come to believe, we come to understand who we are to God. In chapter 2, verse 8, God says, The people who harm you are harming my precious possession. The King James translated that, are touching the apple of my eye. God's precious possession. Unfortunately, we often think of being his precious possession as meaning we're better than other people. That's not the point. We are his precious possession so that we can share his grace and love and mercy with other people who want that. And until we recognize that who we are in God, it will be very, very difficult for us to live humble, holy lives as agents of his kingdom in this world. Think about people you know who maybe you'd call them bullies. Maybe you'd call them people who, you know, who are always fighting for their rights, who, who you know, are, are, will never really have a discussion with you because they are never wrong. Those people are not, don't do that because they're so secure. It's because they're insecure. When we're secure, we don't have to fight for our rights. We don't have to win every battle because we have a bigger picture of life than just that. We have found security in the only place we can really know security, and that's in God. And he says, you're my treasured possession. When Jesus, again, meeting with his disciples in the upper room, in John 13, it says that, that knowing he had He had been given all authority by the Father, that he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father, knowing his security, who he was in his Father. What did he do? He took up a towel and a basin and got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. It was his security in his Father that gave him the ability to do that. We need to know we're God's treasured possessions. Both as individuals and as the church. He loves us with an everlasting love. Throughout Zechariah's prophecy, there are numerous references to shepherds. Sometimes the reference is positive, sometimes it's negative. But there is a a passage about about God being the shepherd in chapter 9, verse 16. And he says, on that day, the Lord their God will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep. That got me thinking about what's the most profound act in Scripture of God declaring his people as his precious possession? I've always thought it was the Exodus. 
You know, I've, I've always thought it was the Exodus. I'm starting to come to see that maybe, maybe it's the return from exile. Because when God rescues his people out of Egypt, they aren't there because of their sin. In fact, going to Egypt was God's rescue of them from famine and death. And, and through Joseph, Jacob and all of his family makes their way to Egypt. And they settle there and they flourish until they flourish so much that the Egyptians get insecure and, and they enslave them. And God goes and rescues them and said, look, you're my people. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you my people to be my witnesses. And he calls them out. But when the Israelites go into exile, it's because they've rejected God. It's because they have declared, we don't really want to have anything to do with God. We'd rather worship Baal and Asherah and Molech. And so God steps back and says, fine, you want to worship those gods? Let's see how they do for protecting you. And they end up in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And there's a part of me that if I were in charge of this thing, which we're all grateful that isn't the case, but if I were in charge of this thing, I might be tempted to leave them there because they've rejected me so many times. And yet, here is God saying, you're my people. I love you. It reminds me of of the parable Jesus tells in Luke 15 about the lost sheep. You know, that lost sheep is not a sheep that just that he just came upon one day. That's a sheep that was a part of the flock and ran away. And the shepherd goes and gets him and brings him home. I was in the prayer room last night and I again saw this picture, this image of, of the shepherd nuzzling this sheep. And I think this is a beautiful picture of our preciousness to God. He delights in us. I love the smile on his face that you've come home. I've missed you. I've wanted you. I love you. I'll rescue you anytime I need to. And if we could just get a glimpse, a deeper understanding of who we are to God, it would transform our lives. And we'd be the kind of holy agents for God in this world that would draw more and more people to him, his kingdom purposes. But ultimately, the way God feels about us and the catalyst for all of this, it, it comes back to Jesus. None of the minor prophets are even close to having the number of references to, to the Messiah that Zechariah does. The number of times Zechariah is quoted in the New Testament far exceeds any of the other minor prophets. You read the Gospels and you look at those references, you will find... Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then Zechariah. And you will see many, many prophecies, particularly in the Passion narrative. Because he knows how vital it is for this one to come. How vital it is for God to communicate in a very close, real way his feelings for us. His desires for us. Who we are to him. And it's rooted in Jesus. 
In, in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, he talks about the branch that is coming. And God will use this branch to save his people and to restore his people and to bring them home. And you get to come to chapter 14, and he has this interesting reference about the Feast of Tabernacles. It surprised me that he says all the nations are going to come and they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. I would have thought they would have said they're all going to come and celebrate the Passover. Isn't that the, that seems like the biggest thing, right? But it's not, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. You, there are still uh, many places where there's a, a significant Jewish population where they celebrate Sukkot. This, uh, this day where they, people build little lean-tos or they live in tents for a week, which is what the Israelites did in this festival. They got, went out of their homes, they went out, and they lived in huts and lean-tos and tents. And it was, uh, it was to remind them, among other things, of the 40 years that they lived in those kinds of, of nomadic homes in the desert. And the reason they celebrate this as a festival is because they remember that in those inclement conditions, God was with them and cared for them. I think one of the most fascinating things at the end of the, at the, end of the wandering story is that it says, Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness and their clothes didn't wear out. Now the fashions may have changed, but their clothes didn't wear out. And they had all the food they wanted to eat. They had all the water they wanted to drink. He protected them. He cared for them. This is our God. And he says, the day, on that day, all of the people, all the nations are going to come and celebrate that I am close to my people. And then I can't help but think of John's gospel. Where he says in one translation, And the word became flesh and pitched his tent. Among us. In Jesus, God comes to us to say, You are my special possession. If you were here this summer and heard Cindy preach, she talked about how our, our little granddaughter is now two and a half. She, when we walk into their house or if she's at our house and one of us comes in the door, she says to us almost, almost every time, shoes off. I mean, just this week I came in and said, shoes off, Grandpa, shoes off. In fact, she reached down and started untying my shoes to try to help me get them off. Shoes off, Grandma, shoes off, Grandpa. And it took us a while to figure out what she was saying and what, she, what the implication of that was. We finally figured it out that when you take your shoes off, it means you're going to stay. If you leave your shoes on, you're probably only there a couple of minutes and then you're going to go again. And she wants us to stay. And that got me thinking about Moses in the burning bush. You know, he's out there in the desert tending his sheep and he looks over and he says, huh, there's a bush burning, but it doesn't burn up. Maybe I should go check this out. And he walks over and he hears God saying to him, Moses, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Shoes off, Moses. And the next thing that came to me is a recognition that God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And God coming to this earth, appearing in the bush, living among his people, 
ultimately the Word made flesh. God took his shoes off long before he asked us to take off ours. And there is a sense in which God is still walking barefoot to be with us. Because he loves us and he wants us. And when we begin to understand that, when that gets inside of us, then being humble, holy agents of God in this world seems almost natural. You know, a lot of times when we think about prophecy, uh, we think about fear. And the church has been pretty good at using prophecy to instill fear into people through the centuries. When I was young, that was kind of the modus operandi, right, in the 60s and 70s. Let's see if we can scare everybody out of hell into heaven. And so, we, you know, we, these movies and all the, the talk and the books and things to say, we're going to instill fear in people. But I don't really think that's the point of prophecy. I think the point of prophecy is to awaken us. And in that awakening, to give us a vision of who God is. And a vision of who we are in God's eyes. And a vision of who we can be in him. That's what God wants for us. God calls us his special people. He redeems us. He rescues us so that we can be his humble, holy agents through Christ in this world of brokenness and need, hurting and pain. Father, we pray that you will help us to see the vision of who you are and who we are in your eyes and what we can be in you through the grace of Christ. Open our minds, open our hearts. That we might be the people you created us to be. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.